Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mystifyingly Missing True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore today an aircraft accident that took place exactly eight years ago. This accident involved a spacecraft, and it happened just three days after a launch went terribly wrong on Wallops Island, Virginia. On that day, October 28, 2014, an Antares rocket exploded shortly after takeoff. I did cover that on my Danger on Delmarva podcast. And I know today is Halloween and there will be a lot of spooky shows or content from podcast or YouTube creators, but I wanted to cover this on the anniversary of the tragedy. I think that with two incidents happening so close together, neither one was really given the attention that it deserved. Even though I live pretty close to Wallops Island, I just saw pictures. It really didn't emphasize just how bad the explosion could have been as the pictures that I saw initially after it happened weren't some of the more close-up or they weren't pictures taken at the time of the explosion. I heard even less about the crash that we'll be talking about today, the Virgin Galactic Enterprise crash. So before we get started in today's episode, I would just like to go over a couple of things. One is that the episode may cover topics that some may be sensitive to. This episode will discuss an accident as well as covering the fates of all of those involved. I will link my sources in the description of the episode if you would like to read any of the information. And in this case, I will have the full NTSB report linked as well. Also, I do have a PayPal and a Buy Me a Coffee account. There can be costs associated with doing a podcast, such as subscription I have to a newspaper's database to help find information on especially older cases as well as different other sources may either be behind a paywall or may need to be requested through certain entities which can incur a charge. If anybody would be interested in donating, I would greatly appreciate that. But with all of that being said, let's get into today's episode. Space, the final frontier. Okay, so I can't say it as well as William Shatner, a.k.a. Captain Kirk, a.k.a. Captain of the USS Enterprise. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase about space exploration, even if we've not actually realized where the phrase came from. Space, until the 1900s or 20th century, had been completely off-limits, even though I'm sure that many scientific and adventurous minds did dream of a day when it would happen. And until regular air flight actually became a reality, the idea of man being able to fly in any form other than in a hot air balloon was only a dream. With new understanding on the physics and the engineering needed to get an aircraft in the air, those dreams that some people held could possibly come true at some point in time. As the heated space race of the 1960s came to the end of a decade with a man landing on the moon, that meant that with each project or mission, the drive to do something new and groundbreaking became both harder, yet all the more enticing. Now, we've seen heartbreaking tragedies that cost the lives of many brave men and women. Three cosmonauts are the only people to have ever actually died in space beyond the line that designates the line between air and space. There have been 14 astronauts and one additional cosmonaut killed 
while going into or out of space flight. There have been 11 people killed either in training or testing, and then others have died where their names have been forgotten, such as those that don't have the word astronaut or cosmonaut after their name or title. These are people who've worked behind the scenes, manufacturing and testing equipment, with the very first fatality occurring in 1930s Germany. Now, when I read that, I thought that sounded like that was really early. I didn't even know that anybody was looking at space um, as a possible goal at that point in time, but I think it just goes to show how much people in any field but especially the scientific field, have those dreams of accomplishing what was once deemed impossible. While many of us may think that spaceflight, whether manned or unmanned, didn't begin until the late 1950s or early 1960s, there were people working on engines and testing these engines to determine if they were feasible and would have enough thrust or power to propel an object far enough to enter outer space. This first death was recorded when a rocket engine exploded during a test. But also in the 1930s, six more people in Germany and one in Italy were killed during experiments or testing of different equipment, but especially engines. There are other hazards, though. One of the incidents with the largest confirmed death toll was in 1980 in the USSR. A Vostok 2M rocket was being fueled when it exploded, killing 48 people. Now, the reason why I said confirmed with that number is in 1996 in China, um, a rocket that was going to be um, carrying a satellite veered off course and it crashed into a village. Now, the report said that 80 houses were destroyed, yet the number of fatalities and injuries, according to um, the Chinese reports, was that there were six fatalities and 57 injured. However, a lot of people have conjectured, and again, it's not confirmed, but conjecture, that the death toll was over 100. With 80 houses being destroyed, the fact that there were less than, you know, 70 injuries and fatalities combined seems a little odd. Um, I know it could be that people were in the right part of the house or, you know, the whole house wasn't destroyed but became unlivable. However, again, just those numbers don't necessarily add up in my personal opinion. I do believe it was a higher figure. So spaceflight, exploration, and commercial endeavors are dangerous. The accomplishments that these scientific marvels have racked up, though, do make our lives easier and information much more accessible, as many rocket launches send things such as satellites into space, as well as restocking the International Space Station. Even with more scrutiny and oversight, as seen in a more modern space missions, there are still risks involved. As we can see by some of the numbers that I just went over, the risks are not always with pilots and astronauts who know what the missions could possibly hold for them. It's not always even workers who are at a launch location or who are working on parts or testing different pieces to the rocket. It can sometimes even affect or take the lives of those who have absolutely nothing to do with the space flight. But looking at just types of incidents where somebody was killed during a space flight, the fatality rate is 3.2%. So that's a pretty high margin, at least in my opinion. So first, let's learn a little bit about Virgin or Virgin Galactic and some of the goals that they intended to accomplish in the earlier days of their program to try to reach commercialized space travel first. 
Now, depending on your age, the first time you may have heard of Virgin was when you were trying to find a new album or disc of your favorite musician. I remember visiting the stores, which usually wasn't even to buy anything, but just to browse and spend time with friends. You know, it was the 1990s, and in some ways I have to wonder what else we could have done at those times. But I was in college in the suburbs of New York, but we would go to the the stores in the suburbs and just, like I said, hang out for a while and just talk. I did once buy a CD from a Virgin Megastore just to say that I bought something from a Virgin Megastore, which looking back some two to three decades later seems kind of an odd reason just to buy one. As time has gone by, Virgin Records is now part of Universal Music Group. Just to try to sum this up, Richard Branson is really the name behind the Virgin brand. So right now he kind of has his hands in or interest in about 400 different enterprises. Even within looking at Virgin Galactic, there are times where one of his other companies may work with or have the contract for doing something for Virgin Galactic. So it, it, sometimes it almost seems as though his one company is a customer or contractor for another company. I guess that all has to do with probably separating interests and stakes or shares. Um, maybe that's needed for insurance reasons. I don't know. But if you were to look up the Virgin brand and just, you know, look at the different enterprises they have, a lot of them are very similar and have very similar names. Um, many of them with the name Virgin in there. So you know, usually if you see something like that, um, there is a, a chance there that Richard Branson is part of it. Now, looking at some of the other endeavors with, say, the Virgin Mobile as it's slowly been kind of phased out and really isn't a player or a big player in the mobile phone and service field, some of his endeavors have not lasted, but he is still worth $3.7 billion. So, you know, I, I think that's pretty successful. So now to Virgin Galactic. I will go through some of the layers in this just to get a better understanding of when they're working together or when another company may be involved. Virgin Galactic was founded by Richard Branson in 2004 as well as British Virgin Group. Its main goal was to establish a commercial spacecraft tourism company. Another company which does not include the name Virgin in it, but it was founded by um, Richard Branson, was called the Spaceship Company. And in this company, there was another investor, Bert Rutan, and Scaled Composites. Um, this is where then Virgin Galactic became a customer of the Spaceship Company. However, in 2012, Scaled Composites was acquired by Northrop Grumman, so Virgin Galactic bought the shares that Scaled Composite had in the spaceship company. So just my understanding of everything, it looks like Virgin Galactic System was a customer of Virgin Galactic, which was a customer of the spaceship company. Again, that was just my interpretation of some of the layers in how Virgin Galactic was run and how they received um, some of the equipment or machines used in order to start testing for space exploration. Now, in 2010, Branson did take some investors, which at the conclusion, after two, I guess you would say, influx of cash from these investors, they held 37.8% stake. Now, Virgin also worked on the Summit satellite launch equipment, such as Launcher 1. Launcher 1 is a two-stage launch vehicle. And the reason why, like rockets or even if you look at the space shuttle missions, the reason they're staged is to try to get the best and most efficient use of the fuel. Um, so 
If you've ever noticed or watched a rocket launch or space shuttle going up, there are fuel tanks that usually, you know, um, stand to each side of the ship. So when it takes off, fuel is being burned from those tanks. And then once it becomes, you know, completely used up, they fall off. So they've burned through that whole stage. And the reason that is, is to stop the drag and to lessen the weight of the ship um, to just allow it to use the fuel more efficiently. But we'll see that the Virgin Galactic ship Enterprise had a different way of actually getting into space. Pretty much the Enterprise would be flown up to a certain altitude where the ship that was carrying it and the ship that's carrying it is called White Knight 2. Once it got to that altitude, it would release the ship known as Spaceship 2. And it would then have like a boost, a rocket boost, to cross that line where it becomes outer space. So the intent of commercial travel was to develop the actual spaceship as well as the spaceship carrier. Um, and those were the two ships I just mentioned. And I'll be saying these names a lot. So White Knight 2 is the carrier that carries the spaceship up to that level. And Spaceship 2 is the actual craft that would have passengers and the pilots to travel into space. That line that I'm talking about as far as when it becomes outer space is 100 kilometers in the air. So... The whole process itself would take about two and a half hours, um, you know, from the beginning of the flight to the end, starting at when White Knight 2 took off. There would only be a short time span where passengers could actually feel the weightlessness of space. It would be about a six-minute time frame that would allow the passengers to unbuckle themselves and see what so many of us have seen in videos in the past of astronauts just kind of floating around a spaceship cabin. So people on these tourism trips could do that, but it would only be for about six minutes. I didn't see anything mentioned about what would happen if somehow one of the people did not make it back to their seat to buckle in before that six minutes was up. And the events and conclusions from to the accident that we'll be covering today makes me wonder if any of these factors were actually thought of in the development of this craft. In 2007, they did experience a tragedy when three people were killed and three severely injured. The employees were technically employees of Scaled Composite, but they were working on the motor or engine for Spaceship Two. There was a test that they were performing where nitrous oxide flows through the fuel injectors. And to that point, there had never been any indication that this procedure itself would be anything less than safe. Even with this event happening, Branson remained positive and said in 2008 that they expected that they would be able to have their maiden flight in 2010. Spaceship Two was unveiled in December of 2009 and the rides were set at $200,000 each and it was stated that they would begin in 2011. When 2010 did come around, White Knight 2 and Spaceship 2 did fly together, but that's where things kind of ended for a while. In April 2011, it was announced that they would not begin commercial flights until 2011. Then they said another time frame would be about a year and a half from then. Um, they did do test flights extensively and as... Of February 2012, Spaceship Two had 15 test flights under its belt while being attached to White Knight Two. There were attempts to launch Spaceship Two using rocket power, but they were not able to get to anywhere near the speeds that they needed to achieve to be able to go to outer space. They were less than half of the 2,500 miles per hour that needed to be sustained for 70 seconds. Now, trying its best to be multifunctional, other uses were also being looked at for the space 
Ship 2, as well as for White Knight 2. Spaceship 2, it was anticipated, could be used for science missions that were suborbital, and White Knight 2 could be used to launch small satellites. But fast forward to now May of 2013, and Branson said that he would be riding aboard the very first space flight that had now been scheduled for December 25th of 2013 with Branson remarking that he might dress up as Father Christmas. But no, no, in January of 2014, so definitely a little bit after that flight date of Christmas 2013, testing was done on the thermal protection coating on Spaceship 2, as well as the reaction control system. Richard Branson's mother's name was Eve, which does you know, come into play with the name of some of the spaceships a little bit later. Um, she was interviewed at one point on her 90th birthday, and she said that she wanted to go to space too. And when she was asked when she thought that could be, this was her quote. She said, I think it's the end of the year. It's always the end of the year, end quote. So I wonder if she realized that what she said was kind of in the realm of it's funny because it's true. So the following month in February of 2014, there were cracks found in White Knight 2. Not cracks in the system, but literal cracks. And while cracks in any system that is part of a flight, whether it's commercial air travel, individual air travel, or something going to space, you don't want to see cracks anywhere. Where these cracks were was in the very long, what was called the wing spar. So you know how I said that the spaceship two would be carried up by White Knight two? Well, where the two planes, White Knight two actually looked like two planes with a long wingspan in between them. And that area in between is what would be carrying spaceship two. So, in that long wingspan, there were cracks forming. Definitely not good. So, by 2014, no flights had yet taken place, and Branson once again set forth the new dates to February or March of 2015. In order to receive clearance from the FAA, there had to be a test flight done at a 62-mile height and going at full speed. When Branson made the new date announcement in 2014, they had yet to achieve that. To put it in perspective, instead of the 62 miles that was needed, they'd only reached 13. Now, some of these tickets for this air travel had already been purchased, and those that had purchased these tickets were not okay with these continued delays. Maybe some were because, of course, safety first, and they wanted to make sure that you know, any ship they would be traveling on was the safest possible. But after so many delays, some people were beginning to get upset. To that point, they had taken in about $80 million in either paying the fare completely or in deposits. So in about a four-year period, time frame of hoping from going you know into air or into space for the first time in 2010 we're now in 2014 and that's not yet been accomplished now i have seen a couple interviews done by branson and he does seem extremely sincere in his desire to not only have commercial space travel but to do it safely however I also think that sometimes sincer the sincerity and drive to achieve a goal can sometimes leave a person, and not necessarily talking about Richard Branson or any other person who you know has very large goals in mind, or anybody who's the head of a large company, but sometimes people can be blinded by a goal. This is just my opinion, and again, more as a general observation, and not of a specific instance. However, given that that is one of the thoughts I have, I have to wonder if it's 
looking at these goals and the closer someone gets to these goals, the more, of course, that you want to keep going and pushing through. But unfortunately, the goals that they're setting are not realistic for the timeframes. So we have a little bit of a background um, with a description of the plane. And now we're at the day of the crash. This was to be a test flight, so no passengers on board. This would be the fourth test flight where White Knight 2 dropped the spaceship known, or spaceship 2 known as Enterprise into space. And while this was the fourth test flight, it was the first in a nine-month period, as well as this was the first time that a new engine that was considered a hybrid engine would be used. The pilot would be Peter Siebold. He was technically an employee of Scaled Composites, and he was very experienced having flown the previous version, the Spaceship One, in only its second ever power test reaching 105,000 feet. And that height is just unimaginable. That day's co-pilot would be Michael Alsberry. He was also employed by Scaled Composites and had been working with them since 2001. Nine years after Peter Siebold flew Spaceship One, Alsbury would co-pilot the Spaceship Two on that first powered flight for Enterprise. Enterprise is the name of Spaceship Two. As one can imagine, being the pilot of any aircraft is exhilarating, yet daunting and demanding. Things are extremely precise. While computerized and many things having automated programs that have made things easier for pilots to a certain degree, it does not eliminate the need for a human touch. Computers are only good, as good as the programs that they run and the people who have programmed them. Sometimes it does take a human with experience and intuition to make a decision. So these were the two men at the helm of Spaceship Two. Things initially went as planned. Once White Knight 2, a.k.a. Eve, got to the appropriate height of 46,400 feet, the Enterprise was released as expected. The rocket engine fired, but within 11 seconds from being dropped from the Eve, the Enterprise broke apart. Traveling at such heights and at such speeds left a large debris field covering 35 miles in length. Surprisingly, people had seen a parachute. If what witnesses stated was true, that would have meant that someone would have ejected at approximately 50,000 feet, give or so, while flying at at least Mach 1 or the speed of sound, but most likely faster than that. They would have had no special suit to help them. It would have just been a flight suit. The cold at that altitude probably is not describable, and there would not have been much, if any, oxygen at that level. If one or both of the pilots had somehow rejected, they would need to be found immediately. The parachute that would have been run, worn by both pilots does automatically deploy at 20,000 feet, so if they had managed to eject from the cockpit and there was no telling what condition they would be in, whether it was because of cold, lack of oxygen, or any injuries that would have been sustained from falling from that level, they had to be found quickly to try to minimize the damage and save their lives. Peter Siebold was found alive but injured. There was concern for his vision as he indicated that his eyes both hurt and that his vision had become degraded. He was having difficulty opening or keeping his eyes open. And when emergency personnel arrived, he finally did open his right eye. Also, his right arm was bleeding pretty profusely with a description that his flight suit was saturated with blood. Even though Siebold had just survived an unimaginable fall, he was actually still able to move and he removed the parachute harness. However, he said that while doing that, he heard a quote clunking noise when he did so. 
And at that point, he did start to worry about a spinal injury, such as a spinal fracture. Once arriving at the ER, it was determined that he had had a four-part fracture of the right humerus. There was also a dislocation to the ball of his ankle, and it was fractured. He had a fracture of his right clavicle, a small cut on his elbow, deep scrapes on his right wrist and back of the shoulder. It really does seem like the right side of his body bore the full brunt of the fall, and there was significant bruising on the right side of his chest. He also had a number of scrapes on his face, as well as scratches to his cornea, and a piece of fiberglass had gone into his left eye, which had to be removed, the fiberglass that is. After being released from the hospital itself, he did go to see an ophthalmologist as his vision had still not improved. The ophthalmologist found that there was still somewhat of what was probably microscopic debris or foreign matter under his left eyelid, and there was a silver sliver in his right cornea. And once these, um, these things were removed, his vision got considerably better almost right away. Now, I do have a question here. So I can see missing some very microscopic debris under the eyelid, but did they not call an ophthalmologist in and they, they would have been able to see at least the sliver in the right eye? I realize that probably ophthalmology is not an area of medicine that really needs to have someone in the ER at all times, but I'm sure there are incidents where an ophthalmologist is needed that the ER staff can stabilize the patient or assess what needs to be done as far as what type of specialty needs to be called. But, you know, some things will require emergency um like an emergency visit where an ophthalmologist would need to be available. I know personally, I've been told that I'm at a higher risk for a retinal detachment. And my ophthalmologist told me if it ever happens during business hours to call them immediately and I need to get to a hospital. If it's after um, your normal hours or on the weekend, go to the ER first and make sure they call him. You know, so there are some situations where um, emergency intervention is needed. So those were just kind of my thoughts that you know, given the fact that this guy had just fallen from about 50,000 feet, that he had survived it with very limited or no oxygen, with it being freezing, that you know, possibly someone could have come in and checked his eyes, especially when given that type of job, he would not be able to perform it any longer if he had vision damage. So what if having that debris under his eyelid or that sliver in his eye had caused permanent damage and had ended his career? Even though I know the fact that he survived was miraculous, so we have to be thankful for that. I'm just, from someone who has eye problems, um, who had to have cataract surgery in my 30s, you know, I... That just gets to me because I, I know how very, very important vision is for a pilot. However, Michael Alsbury did not survive. He had not been able to eject and he was killed. Things happened extremely quickly as far as the accident went. Within 11 seconds, things went from completely normal to catastrophic. And in fact, Peter Siebold said that the plane or the craft actually broke up around him. That's how he was able to use his parachute. It's not that he necessarily ejected, it's the fact that he had his flight pack on and the plane broke apart around him. That kind of adds another layer to the fact that the survival of, of Peter Siebold was just amazing. The Eve also did land safely, thankfully. Now, because this was the first time that that hybrid engine had been used, that was obviously the first thing that people looked at. Things had gone as planned on previous flights, so the major difference here was the use of that engine. But the engine and propellant tanks weren't damaged. They were found in that long field of debris, so it was quickly ruled out that the engine would have exploded or that there was any damage that would have caused this crash. 
The Enterprise did have cockpit video. This would be an extremely useful tool in trying to determine what happened. And while they were quickly able to determine what the ultimate cause of the crash was, the NTSB would need to work backwards to determine why that had happened. The actual cause was in a system called the feathering system, and that had been unlocked too early. Within two seconds of that system being activated, the Enterprise started to fall apart. So the NTSB report is about 155 pages. I say about because some of those pages are, you know, cover pages or index pages, things like that. I have actually read a few NTSB reports in, you know, looking through different cases, whether for this podcast or the other. And I've seen everything from a three-page report from a predecessor of the NTSB to a report like this. And not only are more modern reports usually much more detailed and longer and give a number of different recommendations, this also was an event in a field that was still in its infancy, at least as far as commercial travel goes. So not only was the whole industry learning as they went, but investigative agencies had to learn as well. Within the NTSB, they really do depend a lot on experts in the fields of different planes, even utilizing experts from within a company that may be potentially at fault. But the NTSB does know they cannot have one individual expert on every single aircraft. It would be pretty much impossible, and especially as they also don't just um, examine air crashes. They cover a whole lot of other um, types of incidents, so you know, they do you know, work with people who are actually directly involved in you know, whatever the incident may have been. So with this report, I know that there were diagrams as well as I'm, learn, uh, I'm sure some you know, learning curves that the investigators needed to go through. It was pretty quickly determined that the reason that the system failed, that the system feathered too soon, was technically determined to be pilot error. However, once you hear about the mistake and how infinitesimal the time frame was for the co-pilot to do a certain function, I wonder how you'll feel about calling it actually his mistake or his error. Michael Alsbury did unlock the feathering system too early. That's undeniable. There are a few factors, though, that we need to look at. First, and what we'll see as part of the problem later, was the lack of redundancy or safeguards. Commercial airplanes have a lot of redundancies. One example that I can think of is in certain readings that the pilot and co-pilot must view, each one of them will have their own gauge or reading. And if those readings don't match, they have a third where they refer to that knowing that, okay, the third one is agreeing with, let's just say the co-pilot. So They will then, you know, ignore the pilot's system because there's obviously something wrong and go with the co-pilot and that backup, that third. And they're not connected in any way, so they're all independent of each other. And what that does is add a layer of safety so the pilots aren't having to try to figure out which reading is correct, which, if they're wrong will have devastating consequences in many cases. So that's just one example of a redundancy. Um, and then also having backup systems, if you know a line is cut somewhere, having an independent way of still being able to control the plane, even if that line is cut. However, there was not as much forethought put into this airship. I mean, it's a spaceship. So there was not the same type of redundancies and safeguards that people who are flying at 35,000 feet as compared to 50,000 feet. You may also be asking, what does feathering mean? If you have watched documentaries about, 
you know, commercial aircraft or even, you know, the single engine or smaller planes. Feathering is used when there is an engine that stops working. What happens there is the blades within the engine then are put at a certain angle, which is usually a 90 degree angle that will stop the drag. If say they were flat against each other, they would basically be closing up the engine and that would create drag. Having the, the blades at a certain angle will help stabilize and allow the plane to work as closely to normal as possible. And with the aircraft of today, it is perfectly safe if an engine were to go out that the plane could still land safely. Now in the Enterprise, feathering was a little bit different to say the least. The Spaceship Two, according to the NTSB, was quote, equipped with a feather system that rotated a feather flap assembly with twin tail booms upward from the vehicle's normal configuration, which is at zero degrees to 60 degrees to stabilize Spaceship Two's attitude and increase drag during re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. The feather system included actuators to extend and retract the feather and locks to keep the feather in the retracted position when not in use, end quote. So basically what this is saying is once the plane got to a certain speed, or the, I'm sorry, the spaceship got to a certain speed, the tail, they called them tail booms, but as they were described here, they were on a flap at the rear of the plane. Then once it hit a certain speed, then they would actually be unlocked. They would come up to help stabilize the spaceship. And then also for re-entry, they would then actually add drag. So it's a little different use here than what you would normally see it for in a commercial aircraft, but it would add that drag to help slow down the spaceship. What's important to remember here is that the phase of flight that the pilots were in at this time was called the boost phase. So just from that name, we can derive the fact that the rocket engines were giving the plane itself a boost. So it was propelling the ship further. The speeds of the plane, and I apologize, if I say plane, I mean the spaceship. The speed of the ship becomes very, very important. There are three levels of speed here. Subsonic, which is lower the seat, lower than the speed of sound, transonic, which is in that middle area where it's transitioning from subsonic to supersonic. And that region is between 0.9 and 1.1 Mach. And then beyond the 1.1 Mach is considered supersonic. Now the flight test data card, so this would um, be the card that the pilots were using to get their information from. It indicated that the co-pilot was to unlock the feathering during the boost phase when speeds hit 1.4 Mach and it had to be completed by the time it hit 1.8 Mach or the flight would have had to have been aborted. Just from the fact that Mach means the speed of sound, the difference between 1.4 and 1.8 can go by in an, just an instant. So during the boost phase, the feathering system should not have been unlocked. The spaceship was not designed to be able to handle the feathering being unlocked at any time other than between 1.4 and 1.8. Amazingly enough, the reason for that was actually to help mitigate risk factors from a possibility that if at any time the lock failed, then you know, they needed to have the feathers out prior to them getting to the speed when it would become too da dangerous to try to re-enter the atmosphere if the lock had somehow malfunctioned. But the lock itself was not, quote, designed to hold the feather in the retracted position during the transonic region. As a result, the feather extended uncommanded, causing the catastrophic structural fa failure 
end quote. So, in other words, by unlocking the feathering system when he did, the system itself was not designed to hold the feathering system down, so those two tail booms and the flap that held the tail booms. The system was not designed to hold them down during the 0.9 and 1.1 Mach. So, Alsberry unlocked it at 0.8. Now, just in interest of full disclosure, while the first article that I read said 0.8, another article said 0.92, another article said 0.8, but the NTSB report says 0.8, so no matter what, I'm going with that. And because they are going so fast, the time it took to get from 0.8 through the transonic region was just like a blink of an eye. Because again, this whole event happened in 11 seconds. Then what those tail booms, as they call them, did was cause so much turbulence, so much drag with something going that fast that it literally shook the spaceship apart. The degree of error, the margins and time frames that this task had to be done in were impossible to even make a tenth of a second error because that could lead from everything going perfect to everything, in this case, quite literally falling apart. Now, I will admit that I saw like just a short kind of blurb, a news blurb at one point, and said it was pilot error. And so when you hear something like pilot error, you're wondering, okay, well, they're specially trained. What did the, you know, the pilot do that was so egregious that it caused this to happen? Well, in this case, at least in my opinion, I don't feel the blame should be put on the co-pilot, Michael Alsberry. Let's take a look at some of the things that the NTSB said and what they looked at. There were two major questions, in my opinion, that were looked at through the NTSB report. One was, why was there such a finite margin of error? And was the importance of the feathering being unlocked at an exact time stressed and understood by the pilots? Now, I admit on the second question, this is where initially I wasn't really sure what to think in terms of the pilot error. You know, my thought was, well, if you're told that something needs to be done at a certain time, then it needs to be done at the certain time. But after having a better understanding of just how quick that was, my mind did start to change. You know, not only are the pilot and co-pilot in charge of just doing one thing, they are literally multitasking, taking in, you know, readings from a number of different instruments. They have certain things that they have to do at an exact time, but while they're doing that, they're thinking of probably 40 other things. I know myself that, you know, if I'm in the middle of multitasking and even doing just two or three things, no matter how, you know, rote or how habitual they are, it still becomes difficult. Going back to the first question about why was there such a finite margin of error, the answer was there didn't need to be. Shortly after the crash, Branson confirmed that a mechanism had been designed to stop the feathering system from deploying too early. So while things on general aviation and commercial aircraft already have these fail-safes and security systems in place, somehow the designers of a spaceship didn't see that someone might even just by chance, unlock the feathering system too early. Whether it's just by accident and the person is doing a number of things at once, like I'm sure Alsbury was, or if it's because they are doing so many things, they don't realize that doing this half a second too early would make such a catastrophic difference. Another reason why there did not need to be such a finite margin of error, something that could have been caught earlier, is that the FAA should have looked at the factors. Given that this is a whole new realm of travel, there is a division in the FAA called the AST, though I'm not really sure where the third A comes in because it stands for Federal Aviation Administration 
Office of Commercial Space Transportation. For FAA approval, the FAA asks questions and they have to ensure that certain requirements are met. When scaled composites, remember the developer builder of the spaceship, received questions that they needed to answer regarding the spacecraft, management at FAA AST had removed some of the questions. So questions that possibly could have been used to determine the importance of certain functions or to examine how safe they were never actually reached scaled composites. Maybe if they had, scaled composites may have realized beforehand that they had missed something. Or once the FAA reviewed the information, they may have realized that there needed to be a change to have some type of safeguard put into place for this. The most egregious part of this is that the year prior to the accident in 2013, the FAA AST decided to give scaled composites a waiver on some of the requirements. These requirements had not been met. It wasn't even the fact that, say, scaled composites never answered the question. No, they did. It did not meet standards, but the FAA AST gave them a waiver but scaled composites never asked for a waiver. Now, if you've ever asked for a waiver of something like a fee or you know, some type of requirement, that's not usually something someone just automatically says, you know what, I'll take care of that for you or don't worry about it. No, it's something you have to ask to see if it's still in the realm of possibility to be done. So this was not a matter of scaled composites knowing that something was wrong or not completed, and then asking for some type of waiver, it was just the FAA AST doing it anyway. Upon further review of the request for a permit, because even to run tests, um, there has to be a permit, and that's called an experimental permit. During the course of applying for these, under a section for the hazard analysis, one of the things that in this case scaled compliant would have, I'm sorry, scaled component composites needed to do was go through any you know, risk that could possibly result from a human error. But no one ever thought that something like this could happen. Those that were designing the spaceship never thought that someone theoretically would not release or unlock the feathering system between Mach 1.4 and 1.8. So those who were designing this, in my opinion, and I don't think anybody meant, of course, for this to be the case, but it's almost they were looking at the pilots who would be flying this as superhuman. Scaled composites would have needed to submit renewals for permits um, every year, and so Throughout the first and the second renewals of the permit, it actually was included in the application that they did not meet both the software or the human error components or requirements. According to the FAA, the reason that these waivers were sent through was because it was, quote, in the public interest and would not jeopardize public health and safety, safety of property, or U.S. national security and foreign policy interests, end quote. I think that, I think any time where any company has failed the requirements to get a permit because of risk or hazard reasons, that kind of just by the definition itself, you know, hazard or risk requirements that yes, it can be harmful to the public. The FAA AST also thought that possibly the other um, safeguards or what they called mitigations would stop something where one small error would cause a catastrophe. And that was seen, that was definitely not the case. When all was said and done, out of 10 recommendations that the NTSB provided, only two of them were for the Commercial Space Flight Federation, but eight of the recommendations were for the FAA. So that sounds a little surprising. So as with everything, there are growing pains. 
And looking back to the early days of aviation, the number of people killed in plane crashes statistically was staggering. I don't think you could have paid me enough money to get on a plane any time before the 1970s. Whether it was a design flaw in the plane structure, understanding how pressurization works and how it can increase metal fatigue, and so many other improvements and safety innovations that have been made after each prior accident has led to air travel to be where it is today as really the safest mode of travel. In each one of those cases, there had to be an accident for those shortcomings to be found. But do we want to look at any death or severe injury as an acceptable cost for the advancement of any type of science? Especially when that death or injury came from skipping certain protocols and requirements. Commercial space travel is new. And even though we heard just a little while ago that Peter Siebold was flying Spaceship One all the way back in 2004, it is still a relatively new area of travel. I mean, so new we haven't even really had a full commercial flight right now. So I know that things have happened over the last couple years where billionaires are going into space, but I don't want to focus on those right now. This was going back eight years where a man lost his life and another could have experienced life-altering injuries when there was a very good chance that this accident may not have occurred if all of the normal requirements and protocols were followed. If for some reason an entity that's supposed to help make everything safe actually proactively waived those requirements for a company. Was the idea of going to space that much more important than keeping everybody safe? Because what if something else had happened and one of the ships went off course and went into a residential area? They were flying over desert, but still, even if there was just a small possibility that someone could be injured, shouldn't that have been taken into account? Back before we had the NTSB, there was the CAB, the Civil Aeronautics Board. And the thing is, they were kind of controlled by the FAA. And the FAA was really trying to expand commercial flight at the time. So it's like they really had this motivation to make it still look like space, or I'm sorry, air travel was very, very safe, even when they were investigating accidents. So... Looking at it with that perspective, I'm wondering if when they said that um, that giving the waivers was in the interest of the public, I really am asking myself, were they really saying the financial gain of not only companies, but, you know, any additional revenue that might bring that can be taxed, as well as making themselves possibly look better by helping to get commercial space tourism off the ground, no pun intended, earlier. I can't really say, and these are just all conjectures there on my part, but in the matter of moments, my, my idea of why this crash occurred went from, oh, they're saying it's pilot error, so the pilot did something wrong, to an understanding of there was really no time for Alsbury to make really a conscientious decision as to whether or not unlocking the feathering system just probably less than a second earlier than it should have been. I said probably less than a second. I don't have all of the exact number of seconds timed out, but again, the whole thing took 11 seconds. So very, very quickly. He wouldn't have had enough time for, I think, it to register that I'm doing this 0.6 mock early. So the you know, planes going to fall apart, spaceships going to fall apart, I'm sorry. There just was not that time or the ability to make any type of conclusions from doing that. So before I go, I do just want to leave you with an update about how Peter Siebold is doing. He is still a member of the Scaled Composites astronaut team. He is now their director of flight operations. So he is still working with scaled composites and he is excelling in his career. And while he's accomplished so much, he will forever be tied to an accident that took the life of his co-pilot where 
In my opinion, neither one of them did anything wrong, given the information that they had and the severe limitations as far as that time frame went. So I admit I am not a rocket scientist. I'm sure in the way that I describe some things, you probably realize that. But I did want to do this today on the 8th anniversary of Michael Alsbury's death to hopefully bring a little bit of light as to what happened so that even though on every report it's going to say pilot error, to show that really can we consider it completely his error, if at all, People have made sacrifices of their lives, whether knowing that they are going into an industry where it's a possibility to being bystanders who happen to live near or work around where these craft are being tested and flown. So I also want to remember all that have given their lives in space exploration. One of the links that I'll have in the description will be a listing of all of the events where someone has passed away during either a crash, a test incident, death in ex during some type of experiment, and those who were killed on the outskirts of a town or near where an accident occurred. Some of the listing does not have individual names, but in remembering the incident, and the accident, we are still remembering them. Thank you, everybody, for listening today. I hope you all have a great rest of your week. Bye.